This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On the show, I'm joined by Estelle Erasmus, an author and professor who penned a story in Wired titled Friends, Fleetwood Mac, and the Viral Comfort of Nostalgia, which I'm quoted in. We will dive into that, and I will explore the anti-vaxxer phenomenon as the first COVID-19 vaccines hit the market. And now, The Nexus. Stella Rasmus, an award-winning journalist and writing coach, has been the editor-in-chief of five national consumer magazines. She is a regular contributor for the New York Times and Forbes.com, and she has bylines in the Washington Post, Salon, Wired, Elemental, The Week, Parents, AARP, and more. She is an adjunct instructor at New York University, where she teaches writing classes in the School of Professional Studies slash C-A-L-A, including a special teen journalism program. Estelle is an ongoing guest editor for Narratively. She teaches pitching, personal essay, and getting started writing for Writer's Digest. She writes the All About the Pitch column. In 2021, she plans to focus on writing books. She can be found on Instagram and Twitter at Estelle S. Erasmus. It is in Wired that Estelle recently published Friends, Fleetwood Mac, and the Viral Comfort of Nostalgia, a magazine piece about how people may not agree on much, but they're united by old shows, old songs, and drinking ocean spray cran raspberry juice to a 1977 number one hit, Dreams, by Fleetwood Mac. Estelle, welcome to the Nexus. Thank you so much, Arch, for having me as your guest. I really appreciate it. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So, off the top, why did you get involved with this project? Well, um, I've always admired Wired, and um, I had an opportunity. I teach for NYU, as you said, and um, I spoke with the editor who did a Zoom interview for my class, and he said that he was very interested in different takes on cultural moments, and it had been in my mind that dreams had exploded on TikTok. And I'm a huge Fleetwood Mac fan, and particularly early Stevie Nicks and later Lindsay Buckingham and early Lindsay Buckingham. And um, I just thought there's something going on, the fact that it's not only uh, boomers, but generation Xers and millennials and Gen Zs have been watching Dreams. And I went on to occasionally look at you know, Fleetwood Mac videos from back in the 70s and 80s. And I saw that a lot of Gen Zers were commenting on these videos and becoming real fans of Fleetwood Mac saying, oh, I, I know my parents love them, but I never paid attention. And so the viral phenomenon of what happened on TikTok really translated into increased sales for streaming of dreams, increased interest in Fleetwood Mac, 
And so as an editor and as a, a teacher, um, I teach my students to look for the context, to look for the deeper meaning. And I thought I wanted to pitch something on what that means. And what it means, it's something about nostalgia for the older generation. Um, it's not exactly nostalgia for the younger generation, but it may be an interest in past times, which were perhaps quieter. And so based on that, I started thinking about how I would pitch this. And, um, and actually, I thought that I would speak with you because you're host of this pop culture podcast and a professor of communications political science at American University and I thought you would have some really interesting uh, insight which you did and um, so what I did was I pitched it to the editor is nostalgia the reason for Fleetwood Mac's dreams taking over TikTok and I talked about the increase and I talked about the musical musings of Stevie Nicks remind us of a gentler time and connects with boomers and Gen X's feelings of nostalgia and the hope of Gen Z for a brighter world. And then I put in a quote from you, and I also tied it to something I had seen, which was that Atari was now going to have a chain of hotels. And a lot of people remember Atari as the beloved video game manufacturer of our youth. I said in the pitch, I'll get a psychologist to weigh in and perhaps a social psychologist or, or a cultural anthropologist about trends, phenomena that make it a comeback. And so the pitch was accepted and then I got to work. <laughs> mm. Great stuff. And yes, you disclosed my uh, involvement in this, uh, which I'm glad you did. And uh, I was very honored to be part of this this project and um, I am a massive Fleetwood Mac fan as uh, regular listeners of this podcast know very well. And I spoke a couple of episodes ago about the <clears throat> excitement relating to it. Just for those who have not been following, if you're living under a rock somewhere, <clears throat> a <laughs> man named Nathan Apodaca who lives in the state of Idaho decided to get what appeared to be on um, a skateboard and skated down a road somewhere drinking um, cranberry, cran raspberry juice and, <laughs> and singing a couple of lines, lip syncing and, and singing along with um, Stevie Nicks on that song to TikTok, which... Yeah. One thing that people should realize if you're not totally aware of TikTok is that you can't go beyond a minute. So you only have a short amount of time, which I think is a big reason for its success. It's that it was a quick idea yeah. that caught lightning in a bottle. Wouldn't you agree with that? I agree. And I think something else, he was very relaxed. He was very chill. <laughs> and I think in this fraught time, this fraught political climate, this fraught time with the pandemic, just kind of seeing him cruise along the highway on his skateboard, listening to a chill song from 45 years ago or 44 years ago, it really made like you said, a very big impact very quickly on people. Right. And 
as we may know, um, not only did that make a sensation on the internet, but it actually had an impact on sales for Fleetwood Mac. It's not like these folks are hurting for sales because their back catalog does well enough already. I mean, the album Rumors is one of the top selling albums of all time. It has been for four decades at this point. They continue to sell out concert venues worldwide. It's not like they're an obscure band or anything like that. However, on top of their success, that video propelled Dreams all the way up to number 12 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. So remember, in 1977, they had gone to number one with that very same song, which has not been touched since. A lot of times, songs make comebacks um, when they are remastered, or maybe they they have a remix, or maybe they add some new vocals or something. You've seen that happen numerous times. This was it. It was just the actual song placed back into rotation on the radio, and it was yeah. very fascinating. I mean, there's, and you know, I'm a huge Fleetwood Mac fan, and particularly a huge Lindsey Buckingham fan, and the it's almost like Fleetwood Mac is a cultural touchstone for society because when we think back to, you know, we thought they were done, they had the 70s, they had the 80s, Stevie went into, you know, rehab, and then here they are back with Clinton with, you know, don't stop thinking about tomorrow. And they became big again because then they got together and they did the dance. And, um, and now again, they have, they, are having a moment. And I mean, in fact, as I know, you know, Stevie Nicks just sold her catalog for a hundred million dollars. And as a partnership, which is going to be developing supposedly new artists. So, I mean, there's one way that this group or, you know, these singers have really uh, stayed in the public eye. And it just, you know, some of it is just very serendipitous, but it just keeps happening. Well, and let's focus on Fleetwood Mac and Stevie Nicks for a minute here before we move on to other um, touchstones. And I would say a lot is happening with that group, um, that artist specifically. Stevie Nicks is the only female in history to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice as a member of a group and as a solo artist. She has been... She has a new song with Miley Cyrus. She has been on American Horror Story and and so on and so forth. So, Estelle, wouldn't you say there's something maybe about her particularly yeah. that might be driving this? I think she has always had a real aptitude toward finding the people that she can connect with to drive forth her own music or her own brand. Uh, when you think about it, I mean, she connected very early on with Lindsay Buckingham and he was, and she completely says in older interviews that he was a driving force. Um, she didn't have to, you know, play the games that a lot of women had to play because she had the protection of Lindsay and then Fleetwood Mac. 
Um, and then later on, uh, she always found a way, whether it was through producers that she connected with, like Jimmy Iovine, I-, I believe his name was, um, or, um, you know, other performers to continue her relevance and, you know, more power to her. You know, she's been in television, the American, I think it's American Horror Show and, um, and her connection with Miley Cyrus, with Sheryl Crow, with, I mean, so many of the singers, uh, does keep her very much in the public eye. But this one, she couldn't have planned. I firmly believe she didn't even know what TikTok was before this happened. So. Oh, definitely has not planned it. No, I, I'm just saying that I think it's, I think Nathan Apodaca in Idaho was very shrewd in that he knew that she would have this instant recognizability and therefore this would make his little video a hint. I mean, I don't think this would have worked with someone like Sheena Easton, for example, or, or maybe somebody okay. from an, an earlier generation who was well known then, but hasn't continued to have the relevance. So there's something I think in the air about Stevie and Fleetwood Mac that make them timeless. I agree. I agree. And I mean, the talent is there. There, you know, that's, you know, that's, nobody can dispute that. And so overall, what were your findings in the Wired article? Well, it's interesting because as I start writing, sometimes other ideas are generated. Originally, I didn't have any, I ended up writing about Friends as well, which is the TV show from two decades ago with Monica Chandler, Joey Ross, <laughs> Phoebe and Rachel. And um, as I was writing this, I always tell my students to write a very powerful intro into an article, and then you craft the middle, and then to end with a powerful ending. And what I like to do is I take something from the beginning of the article, and I circle back to it in a different way at the ending to kind of give a feeling of closure. So in the beginning of this article, I wrote, I have a habit I don't want to break. Every night, long after my husband is not so gently snoring next to me, I turn on the TV and laugh at the antics of Monica Chandler, Joey Ross, Phoebe, and Rachel on Friends must-see TV from two decades ago. Even though I've probably seen each episode a hundred times, it seems to be the only move that gets me to sleep and stops the nervous whirring in my mind. What's really going on? So this is my intro into the article. And then I spoke with a psychologist. She said, you and many people I talk to are doing the same thing by watching Friends, says Emily Ann Hall, a clinical psychologist and co-founder of COA, the world's first gym for mental health. During chaos, we seek familiarity. It's why what many of us watch our favorite TV shows over and over instead of starting a new show. You know what is going to happen, and you don't need to worry about whether the show will be good or if it will upset you. I also think that bringing back music from the past is one way people cope with the instability of our world. And that's when I explained, then I talked about how nostalgia can help to combat feelings of loneliness, and that might explain the latest multi-generational interest in Fleetwood Mac's songs, Dreams. And then I talked about what uh, Nathan had done. So that was my entry into it. And the feeling you know, that conveyed by me watching Friends is the same thing why people would watch Dreams. It was kind of like a comfort level. The nostalgia that 
Gen, you know, boomers and Gen Xers are feeling um, by watching it is, you know, was something that I wanted to touch on. Yeah, and it worked very well in my opinion, and I think that when folks read it, they will um, gain some valuable insights into what's going on now. I um, beyond the article. What do you yeah. think is the impetus for this burst of nostalgia in the U.S.? I think that it is we are in such scary times. Um, you just never know where we're getting you know, from the left, from the right. It doesn't matter what side politically you're on. There's just drama, conflict issues, problems, things that need to be resolved, laws that are on the books. Um, you know, there's just so much to be concerned with. And that's compounded if you have kids. <laughs> and that's compounded, uh, you know, looking at education system, looking at the breakdown. I think we have so many breakdowns in society from communication to the different standards to um ways of the way that we used to almost have an honor code. So much of that is broken down that um, an interest in earlier times, chiller times, times where maybe the world might have been perceived to be a safer place. I think that's really spurring some of this interest. Right, right. I mean, it's, I find it fascinating that a lot of the nostalgia is, I would say in earlier times, people would be nostalgic for things that they experienced or they encountered earlier in their life. But what I'm finding now, and I mentioned this in the article, is that yeah. young people are nostalgic for something they have never encountered, which to me is utterly fascinating in that people who are early 20s have never obviously lived through the 80s or 90s and when there was a period of relative stability especially in the united states um and since then you think about it um if you're 21 years old you were born in 1999 since then you have experienced 9-11 you've experienced the financial crisis of 2008 and now you've experienced the pandemic that's three things in your short life that are massive and devastating so why wouldn't you want to escape to the 80s if you had chance right or even the 90s yeah which is still 20 years ago right uh it's crazy, but it, it's so true. I mean, everything old becomes new again in a, in a weird way. Right, right. And um, I, uh, let's talk about Friends a little bit. I mean, obviously, okay. it's a favorite of yours, but why that show? And does it resonate with younger generations, in your opinion? I think so, because my daughter saw a friend, she's 11, and she's obsessed also. I mean, she probably can't watch all of them, because some of them cover subject matters that we wouldn't have her watch. It's also not a particularly politically correct show. I mm -hmm. will say that. 
But um, there, you know, when there is strong characterization and there are strong relationships between characters, as there are in the friends group, um, it's, it's very comfortable. Now, I saw Friends when it first came out, and I loved it. And when I found it again uh, on, you know, on TV, I just, it, it's something that I turn on. My husband goes to sleep, I turn it on, and it just lets my mind relax. I can't, so I, it just lets, it just calms me down because it's almost like there was a TV show called Cheers that I don't know if everyone, you know, listening was about a bit of Cheers with Ted Danson, uh, was, was very popular. I think that was, maybe that was in the, 80s and um, they say where everybody knows your name and it's almost like I feel I know their names I know their I don't have to figure out what's going to happen and it was genuinely funny writing so it just makes me laugh and it makes me relax I don't have to uh, get nervous watching a new show or see you know what's going to happen now oh no you know so that's feeling of not having to anticipate the other shoe dropping, I think is very uh, tempting. And I'm not the only one when in my research, so many people said, yes, now I understand why I do that, or why I go back to the same old familiar books, or why I listen to, you know, that music that I listened to growing up, that kind of um, response. Do you think, though, this is a thing that every generation encounters meaning they they look back to something in their past with with delight and that in 20 or 30 years do you think the gen z kids of today are going to have that same feeling about things that are going on now yeah i mean actually i interviewed um the uh the founder of Z Fluence, which is a company that works with brands and um, and Gen Zers, uh, her name's Ava McDonald. She's 19 years old, and she feels that um, dr- you know, for her, for her, dreams will always remind us. She said of our connection to parents and grandparents during this pivotal time in our lives. So this is going to be something she's going to be nostalgic for. It's so <laughs> funny because <laughs> the nostalgia continues at a different level. And it's really funny to think that, you know, perhaps 30 years from now, she'll think of this time during the pandemic in dreams, which by then will be a 70-year-old song or something. <laughs> right. It would be. It, it, see, I think that's fascinating to me that people would be nostalgic for something that happened so many years before they came along. I mean, I, I am certain unless you are completely nihilistic, you're not going to be nostalgic for the pandemic, for example. Um, at least I hope, (laughs) but, uh, I imagine that there is certainly a healthy dose of culture now that you will, that one would look back with longingly, maybe like Marvel comics or the, the movies of today or Miley Cyrus, as we've talked about Ariana Grande. I mean, those types I think will still have an impact years from now for people who are young today. I agree. And I think that people um, are somewhat idealistic, like after something is over. So after the pandemic is over, after everyone's been vaccinated, after like people will look back and find 
the good moments and there's a lot of horrible moments, but they'll be like, okay, this is where, you know, I have uh, friends and colleagues whose kids came back from college, right? And they had virtual college, much as what uh, Ava McDonald, who I'm interviewing, and she never thought her parents would be her roommate. And, um, you know, they're finding uh, time to bond and all that. So I think that in terms of the nostalgia, yes, they're horrible times, but sometimes when we look back, we don't remember that. Um, I think it's a self-protective device. And it's interesting, in my research, I spoke with Grant McCracken, who's a cultural anthropologist, and he's consulted for Netflix and Google and Sony. And he said that... um, What's really different now is that people used to make their vital connections to pop culture in their teens and stay current through their 30s and then would kind of just drop away because, you know, you're getting older and you're kind of out to pasture. But today, the viability of needing to remain in the game and understand all these new technologies and, you know, TikTok and everything, you have to stay relevant in your career, in pop culture, you know, in your relationships by being connected all that. And he said, as a result, we're much more attached to the moment than we used to be. Even while, you know, as I say in the article, we're connected to nostalgia, we're still very present in the moment. Like, it's not like I'm going to retire and just leave everything behind. People aren't really doing that. No, no, they're not. And I think it's it's interesting you brought up technology because that's something I talked about in your piece in that yes. not only is there a revival for Fleetwood Mac, I also met, made mention of Van Halen, who yeah. had, um, uh, sadly, their lead guitarist, Eddie Van Halen, passed away recently at the age of 65, way too young. Um and there's a revival in Van Halen's music and Steely Dan. And there's also a sense of de-emphasizing CGI in a lot of movies. Now, granted, it still happens a lot. So I'm not saying it's going away by any means. But, but there is sort of a newness to the idea that you would film action sequences live and not actually have to do them on a computer or through animation. And also the idea of video games are there is a retro movement that's been going on for some years, but I think it's gaining ground in the last five years or so where the, um, graphics are purposely made to look like they're 40 years old. And you would think at some point, why in the world do that? If you could have the best, most exciting graphics. And the reason is people, kids, especially like the simplistic look of video games that might've happened with Atari, as you mentioned. So I find this fascinating, this kind of, taking technology down a few notches and going to a level that's a little bit simpler, a little bit more digestible. And I love that you brought it up and you had some really great quotes in the piece. There was so much that you said. And one of the things that you said that I think really resonates and also connects to what you just mentioned is that 
according to you, people also feel a deeper spiritual craving for authenticity. Right. And you said the music of Gen Z is very techno and dance oriented. Um, and then you said there's been this nascent movement to experience classic rock of the 70s and 80s, like you said, such as Van Halen, Fleetwood Mac, and because they're not auto-tuned. And I think this uh, feeling of this authenticity is um, resonating, uh, even partic- like particularly with young with younger kids who perhaps are growing up with so much noise around them, even more than we did, mm-hmm. that it just kind of pulls it down into a more beta kind of feeling when you see these like dial down versions of everything. So I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, so I feel like nostalgia um, is one thing, but it's very interesting to me what people are nostalgic for. And it's a, as you said, as I said, a more authentic, um, real, that word is used so often in hackneyed, but a, a more real, more realistic kind of, um, way. Now, look, I mean, when Autotune started, for example, um, <clears throat> which the, the one who really popularized it was Cher with her song Believe in 1998. Um, it was the, the hottest thing ever. I mean, people were giddy over it. They couldn't get over how, exciting her vocals were and how exciting it was to be able to manipulate audio like that. And granted, people still like it a lot, but there has been quite a backlash to auto-tune, especially because it's used so often and so prevalent with today's young artists. And now we have this return to pre-auto-tune. So the cycles that are constantly going on, to me, are absolutely fascinating. I agree. I agree. It's it's fascinating. And I think there are lots of studies underway and lots of research. And we're going to be learning even more about the changing uh, psychology of our times that's going to translate into a different way of consumerism, a different way of how brands look at what's happening. It just is going to translate into a lot of different uh, areas once we're past, you know, this pandemic time, I would say. And lastly, is there a dark side of nostalgia, meaning we might spend too much time thinking about the past in order to escape thinking about the future? Yeah, when I spoke with the cultural anthropologist, at first he said, you know, the initial idea of what nostalgia used to be would be this kind of bittersweet, uh, you know, sad reminiscence of what once was and, you know, where you get mired in something. And that's really not what we're seeing with, you know, what happened with the TikTok video and all that. It's almost like a different interpretation, you know, for today's age of what nostalgia is, because it's not this just sadness and woe is me and that's what it was. Um, it's really looking at it in a way of comfort. And I think that's something different. Yeah, that's, that's a great way to look at it. And I actually hadn't thought of it that way. It's that it's more of a TikTok Fleetwood Mac 
phenomenon is a celebration of something that happened in the past, not so much about, oh, how wonderful it was that (laughs) Fleetwood Mac occurred, but, you know, we're, we can't ever have that again, which in a way we're saying we absolutely can. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think uh, there's going to be a lot more of it. It won't be the lightning in a bottle that, you know, Nathan, uh, Nathan Apocata did, but I think there will be other things that are going to be happening. And I'm looking forward to seeing what those are. Well, I will say as a postscript here that <laughs> now, <laughs> I think this is kind of ridiculous and hilarious at the same time. Now record companies are contacting TikTok people who are prominent on that platform and trying to pitch them ideas to make the next dreams. And it's like, that's not the point. That's not how it happened. It was was a viral thing that bubbled up. You can't pitch that. You're right. But I've been doing some research into TikTok and it's actually fascinating what is happening in terms of publications getting on and having their own channel and using it as a vehicle to uh, expand on the content of their uh, material on the context to give more context to their material in short little clips. Um, and I think personally, I think it's going to be the next iteration for journalists. I actually got a TikTok account. <laughs> 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 uh, and not just to, and not just to do dances with my daughter. <laughs> well, I yeah, I mean, why not? It's a uh, it's a everybody's doing it. Why not not join in? Bye. So that's uh, oh, that's that's wonderful. That's a great, great way to wind up. Well, you may find Estelle at Estelle S Erasmus on Instagram and Twitter. Estelle Erasmus, thank you so much for joining me. Can I also can I say one more thing, Art? Sure. If people go to my website, EstelleSErasmus.com. They can sign up for my newsletter where I give publishing tips and editor interviews and all sorts of fun things. Good, good. I'm glad I'm able to get that in, of course. And she turns up in the New York Times and Wired. You'll you'll start to see that name more and more. And she is also going to be working on a book. And that's a ways off in publication. Yeah. But once it comes out, keep the name in mind and please uh, get a copy. So um, thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. And we will be right back. One of the big storylines in 2021 is going to be the COVID-19 vaccine. Kudos to President Trump and his administration for Operation Warp Speed, the turbocharged government program that allowed the creation of vaccines to occur with lightning quick velocity. My sense all year was that once all the great scientific minds who work in the area of infectious diseases got to developing a vaccine, that a World War II mentality would kick in. That is, necessity is the mother of invention, and the -the round-the-clock work ethic seen during the Second World War would produce amazing results. There were so many things invented in World War II because of the need to fight the enemy, and many were unintended. Ballpoint pens, superglue, penicillin, 
along with more intentional items like radar and satellites. So it stands to reason that when we are fighting another global enemy, and massive profits are involved, that the best and the brightest would mobilize to create a vaccine. And in literal warp speed, they've done it. Pfizer is on the market now with their vaccine, and as of this podcast, Moderna is days away from FDA approval. Can you imagine that? Nine months in the pandemic and we already have preventative vaccines out there? But now we have a monumental showdown emerging and one that wouldn't have been fathomable 20 years ago and probably not 10 years ago either. A showdown between those who trust vaccines and those who don't. Yes, people will try to complicate the issue and say they usually trust vaccines, but in this particular case, they want to, quote, do their research and, quote, wait to see how it goes. Don't be fooled. Those types are anti-vaxxers. And like cult members, anti-vaxxers hate being labeled that way. But it's true. When I was a kid in the late 1970s, almost nobody questioned vaccines. Your mom took you to the doctor and you got the battery of shots and later booster shots. I remember that brown card we had that listed all of the funny name diseases on them that fortunately I never had to worry about. What was rubella and whooping cough? How funny. Mumps? These were disease names as out of a kid's story. The point being, you could joke about those things you were inoculated against. I remember at the time asking my mom about those diseases, and she said something like, These were all things they had when I was a kid, but now they're gone. That was progress, and it made me feel good. I probably don't have to tell you that these diseases are not all gone anymore. In fact, polio is making a comeback in many parts of the world, and maybe coming to an America near you. Funny thing about polio is that it's the model I look at most closely when I think of the coronavirus vaccine situation. While it took much more than nine months to develop the polio vaccines, once they were on the market, people rushed to take them. There wasn't any of this, I'm going to do my own research nonsense and they'll think it over. Now, I think it's okay to have a healthy skepticism about institutions, especially government. But what the anti-vaxxers have done is taken that to a cosmic, cult-like level. One of my issues over the last decade has been to dismiss fringe issues as so obviously absurd that I laugh them off. When I heard that people thought vaccines cause autism without any causal evidence to back it up, I dismissed it as the work of a bunch of crackpots. I was wrong. Not on the autism part, but on the dismissing the crackpots part. Instead of science and reason quashing the stupidity like a bug, the anti-vaxxer movement has only gotten more prominent in the last five years. To the point now that nearly half the country isn't sure they want to take the COVID vaccine. Can you believe that? In the polio scourge, people lined up to take the vaccine. Now, while there are tens of millions who will line up this time to take the new shot, like myself... There are astonishingly tens of millions, perhaps hundreds of millions, who will not. And they have very little to explain their position other than it doesn't feel right, or I need more research done, or someone somewhere said someone died from the vaccine. How did this mayhem happen? Credit the pernicious internet with its cancerous invasive ways. Where there's smoke, there's fire, and even if you can't prove vaccines are harmful, 
There's just a bit too many people saying so not to dismiss it yourself. When the time comes to potentially get a vaccine in your own world, well, maybe these things I've been hearing about just might mean something. So I better wait. And that waiting is going to prolong the pandemic and slow down reopening the economy fully and getting us back to our normal lives. Was the vaccine process fast? No doubt about it. Did the drug makers do exhaustive clinical trials? They sure did. And the fact that five vaccines are going to be on the market by spring and summer means I have full confidence that these pharma powerhouses got it right. I'm not averse to vaccines. Had to get six of them earlier this year with two follow-up booster shots for my trip to Africa. Had no side effects whatsoever and have the peace of mind that I will never get hepatitis A, B, and polio for the rest of my life. If we want to make COVID like polio, we've got to get vaccinated. I'm glad the Trump administration and the scientific community have made this a reality. Crackpots be damned. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and is produced by Colin Martin. Production assistance by Greg Schaefer. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide. We will see you next time and be well.